Amen. If you guys would take a seat and grab a Bible. Um, and hey, look, today might be one of those days where you want a pen and to take some notes. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 9. And let me just tell you, we're going to walk through some pretty complicated stuff. I'll say this again at the end of the message, but when we go through messages like this, if you ever want my manuscript and you want to go back and you want to dive into the weeds of this, you can do that because we're only going to scratch the surface today of Daniel chapter 9. But we are going to walk through it from beginning to end because we teach through the Bible. Let me just ask you a question. What would change about your life if you knew exactly how everything would end? Like what happens if you next week some company comes out and they, they can tell you, hey, you just spit in a cup, put your DNA in there, and two weeks later um, we'll be able to tell you exactly how your life would end? What would change? Imagine this, John, right? John, you're going to live until the ripe old age of 88. You will die peacefully on your recliner as you watch the Braves hit a knockoff Grand Slam home run by your grandson in the seventh, inning, or in the seventh game of the World Series to beat the Braves. Or, I'm sorry, to beat the Yankees. I totally messed that whole thing up. Not so bad, right? That'd be a pretty good way to end it all. Like you're going to be 65, you're going to retire from a job where you contributed to world peace and you had this amazing life and you're going to get to play golf. And I know these are guy things, but that's how we think. Not too bad. What about, hey, Sam, you're going to get in a car accident and in three weeks you're going to die on impact and that's going to be it. How would that change the way you live now? Would you... Would you live as if life was imminent? Would you, would you continue to veg out on Netflix and, and do whatever you do, playing golf all the time? Or would you settle the scores, maybe between you and somebody else and you and God? Would you, would you take your time of confession and your time of worship more seriously? See, maybe for many of us, we, live, we feel like we're still living in the first scene of life. And the reality is, if I'm honest with you, none of us know. None of us know what the end is going to look like. Now, now we're at, in Daniel chapter 9, you're at the point in Daniel's life, he's in, he's in his mid-80s and he's rounding home base and he's getting to the end. Daniel's an old man at this point and he understands that all this is coming to an end and what you're going to see, what Daniel is going to show you is that there's essentially two things that Daniel does in this chapter of the Bible that will shape the way that he ends his life well. And I would tell you it's the same two things that you and I should be doing right now to have ultimate fulfillment in this life. Here they are. Daniel had a robust prayer life and he, he knew how the world was going to end. He had a perspective of the end and he had a robust prayer life. Here, write this down. If you want to live a life of intentionality, you need to learn a few key things about why and how Daniel prayed and what grounded his assurance. That's what we're going to look at in Daniel chapter 9 today. That's essentially what this chapter is about. All right? With that, let's jump into the deep end. In the first year of Darius... Now, really quickly, something that I want to point out is that Christianity is different than every other religion in the world because it's the only religion that is historically grounded where you can actually go back to times and you can look at exactly what was happening. It's not, it's not a, myth, uh, a mythology to where you have some God that doesn't enter into history, but we know exactly what's happening and we can track with these dates. 
If you remember correctly, the nation of Israel had been ransacked by the Babylonians in 586 BC, and now they're in the first year of Darius, and this is in 538 BC. Hold on to that because these numbers, these times are going to be important. In the first year of Darius, verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now check this out. Daniel is an old man in his mid-80s at this point, and he's still reading the Bible. Oh, I love this. After living most of his life in captivity, Daniel never stopped reading his Bible. He never stopped trusting in God. Now, do you know what he's reading? Did you notice? Did you notice what he's reading? Because this should be really, really important to everybody that goes to city church. Anybody know? How much? Right there in your Bible. He's reading the book of Jeremiah. Anybody know what chapter? This is where you get real, real deep into it. Jeremiah 29. Why is that significant? City church is named after Jeremiah chapter 29. See, in Jeremiah chapter 29, God comes to the nation of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, and he tells them, hey, the nation of Israel is about to go into exile, into Babylon for the next 70 years. And what I want you to tell them to do is build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce. He says, seek the shalom or the welfare of the city that I have sent you. What you have to understand is that Daniel is living in the middle of this prophecy. In his mid-80s at this point, it's coming to an end. Daniel's reading the Bible. He's been meditating on the Bible. And he's sitting here wondering, God, the 70 years is about up. You made a promise. What are you going to do? Are you going to do something here? Listen, listen. Daniel lived with a hope and an expectation because his life was grounded in the word of God. And nothing that happened in Daniel's life was on accident. What you need to understand is as you pull back the layers of the Bible and as you pull that thread through the book of Daniel is this. Nothing in life is on accident. Nothing. Whether or not you understand this, what you need to understand is that God has a purpose for your life. Daniel, in the middle of the 70 years, understood that God understood what he was doing. And you need to get that too. Well, Daniel, Daniel's reading, he's reading this and he's wondering, God, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? The 70 years are about up. Can I point this out really quickly? Daniel understood the scriptures and he understood the character of God, which means he based his life on what he knew to be true. See, Daniel had one of the most significant prayers in the entire Bible right here in Daniel chapter 9. And what he does is he doesn't just pray haphazardly. He leans back into the promises of God. If you want to see God answer your prayers, I'm just telling you, the surefire way to get God to answer your prayers is for you to recount the promises of God and pray them back to him. Did you know that there are over 3,000 of them in the Bible ready for you to lay claim of because God will never contradict himself? See, this, this is what Daniel did. And let me just tell you, that is only possible when you know them. Y'all, Daniel knew the scriptures. He knew that Jeremiah had prophesied to the nation of Israel that after 70 years, God would visit his people. And that time was up. So Daniel says, God, it's time for you to make good on what you promised. See, here's the deal. Prayer, I believe, is the most underutilized resource on this planet. It's the most untapped potential that all of us have. And I believe it's that way because most of us don't understand how prayer works. 
My old pastor, J.D. Greer, he said it this way, prayer is less about you getting close to God and more about God wanting to get close to you. I don't know if you know this or not, but God's not lost. You don't need to go find God. He's been there the whole time. What you're going to see is this. Prayer moves you close to God, and it moves God close to you. It aligns his will with your will, and what you'll begin to see is that God does some incredible things through that. I just don't think that most people understand prayer. Listen, listen, this is so important. God doesn't need your prayers. You do. See, there's a difference there. What happens is, is when we pray, we activate in our bodies a posture that invites God to become face to face with us. And God is waiting for you to turn your face back to him. By the way, there are all different kinds of ways that you can pray. So let me just get real practical and give you a couple. Because again, if we're going to say it's an underutilized resource, here's a couple. You should pray continually. Like I know, I know when Paul says that, pray without ceasing. Some of you are like, what in the world does that mean? It means constant conversations. Martin Luther says the best kind of prayers are those that are conversational in nature, like you would have with your kids or your spouse. Like you're walking into a meeting, you should say, God, I need wisdom. Or God, I'm just grateful for another day whenever I wake up. Or Holy Spirit, will you continually change me? It's little short spurts of continual conversations with somebody that you know. Number two, you should pray intentionally. So not only are you having multiple conversations, but listen, you should set aside a regular time every day. I would say the the same time because that's how you form a habit. Uh, And you should begin to develop this moment, whether it's five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour, it doesn't really matter, a, a specific time every day that you take to pray. Number three, you should pray out loud. Like, I know that that's uncomfortable for a lot of you, but what you have to understand, just like reading out loud, whenever you verbalize something out loud, you reinforce that thought back into your own self. And if you didn't know this, when you pray out loud, you teach one another how to pray too. Number four, you should pray silently. I think that there's a posture of developing meditating and responding that happens as you pray silently. Both are important. You need to listen and you need to pray. And as you pray, you turn your face towards God. It's exactly what Daniel says. Look at it, verse three. Then I turned my face to the Lord. Essentially, that's all prayer is. Don't overcomplicate it. Essentially, what you are doing is you're basically going like this with your life and you're turning around and you're getting face-to-face with intentionality. Matter of fact, this isn't in my notes, but, but um, the way that Dustin, one of our elders, always talks about his relationship with Rainey is are they back-to-back, shoulder-to-shoulder, or face-to-face? The healthiest way that you're in a relationship is when you're face-to-face. So when you're face-to-face with God, you are posturing yourself to be in a healthy relationship. All you're doing is you're meeting with intentionality. So Daniel says, I turn my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer, and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I pray to the Lord my God and make confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong, and acted wickedly, and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. 
Notice that as Daniel turns his face to God, he is absolutely overwhelmed by his unworthiness. That's why the first thing that comes out of his mouth is, I'm not worthy, we are not worthy to stand in front of your presence. Y'all, it is impossible to come face to face with the living God, the God who created all the universe, and not feel a bit overwhelmed and unworthy. Have you ever stood in front of somebody that most of the world thinks is great? Like maybe the Queen of England, we used to say the President of the U.S., but for some reason we've lost the ability to see that there's an authority that comes with positional authority with an office. So imagine whatever you put in your mind that you stand before the king or whatever, the queen or whoever. There's a sense in which you'd feel this, this impotence to bow out of reverence for their positional authority, right? Multiply that times a infinity. And that's what you get standing before the king. See, the king of kings, what it does is this, is it should always, it should always make you feel gratitude and unworthiness. And when you hold those two things in tension, watch this, it creates an overwhelming sense of love. I'm not worthy to be in your presence, and yet you've invited me in. Y'all, when you see yourself rightly in front of the king of kings, all the entitlement that you have gets thrown out the window. Look at Daniel's prayer. Look at every confession. Do you see why that's so significant? Can I tell you why that's so significant? Go back and study Daniel's life. He's the only major figure outside of Jesus in the Bible that nothing negative is said about. Y'all, Daniel is a pretty good person. If you really think about it, none of this stuff that he's saying was about him. But you have to understand this. He didn't break covenant with God. He didn't rebel against God, but leaders go before the king and take corporate responsibility. That's what leaders do. Y'all, Daniel takes the time to confess the sins of the people before God, and he does it on behalf of the community because leaders take responsibility. Write this down. A leader makes a problem their responsibility even when it's not their fault. Man, let me just tell you. You have a responsibility to love your wife well. I know, I know, men, you love Ephesians 5 where it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But if you actually keep reading down a couple verses, it says, men, lay down your lives like Christ did the church to make her holy and beautiful and blameless. Do you know how Christ laid down his life for the church? He died for her. Y'all, I understand it could be her fault. But let me just tell you, I don't care. God doesn't call you to win arguments or blame shift. He calls you to sacrificially serve and win her heart. Leaders take responsibility. I'm telling you, in a world that is filled with people that are quick to abdicate responsibility, there is nothing more attractive than people who give away authority without abdicating responsibility. You hear what I'm saying? If you are a leader, and everybody in this room is, everybody has leadership over something, Your job is to take responsibility even when it's not your fault. Because when God's people are quick to own it, instead of blame shift, y'all, that's where the world begins to change. Listen, because at the end of the day, here's what happens. Let me just tell you. You either look down on others or you look up to God. Do you know how you always look up to God and not look down to others? You put yourself in the seat of sinner so that you're in the community with everybody else. That's what Daniel did. He didn't say they did it. He said we did it. And because we did it, I look up to you and worship. I place myself in a position to where I am a part of the community. 
So here's three quick, easy ways that you can own it in your relationships. You ready? Number one, be quick to apologize. Be quick to apologize. You know, in every situation, there's always something for you to own, whether or not you think there is or not. Take a second, find out what that specific thing is, and then publicly own it. Notice that Daniel, he's very specific in his confessions. He understands that there are things that they have that are rooted in God's word that they didn't do. So he names those specific things, and he takes ownership for them, and then he confesses them. Be quick to apologize. Number two, always give the benefit of the doubt and assume the best of others. Y'all, so many failures and arguments could be avoided if we simply sought to understand one another before we made judgments. Having a critical spirit is not ever going to change the world. Here's a phrase that you should memorize. Write it down. When you said blank, this is what I heard. But I'm not sure that's what you meant to say. But that's how I received it. Do you mind clarifying? (laughs) Y'all, listen to me. Thousands of marriages and friendships would be healed if we just took the time to understand one another in good communication. Like, I'm just telling you. Because most of the altercations in my marriage happened from my mouth to her brain. Where I said something, she received it, but that's not what I meant, and that's not what she heard. And if we would both just take a second to say, hey, I heard this. Is that what you meant to say? I'd be like, yeah, that's actually, no, I'm not sure. (laughs) You got that exactly right. Be quick to apologize. Give the benefit of the doubt and assume the best. Here's the third one. Be intentional with your personal pronouns. And I'm not talking about what you think. Watch this. Leaders use we, not they. See that? When we put ourselves in the camp of every, everybody else, we identify with the people and problems get fixed. It, it would have been really easy for Daniel to said something like, hey, I'm here because the dudes before me were a bunch of idiots. And he would have been absolutely technically correct. But leadership isn't about looking down on others. It's about creating solutions. And the way that you create solutions is that you become a part of the community. Listen, if it's always somebody else's fault, you're never going to fix it. So real practically, in your marriage, okay, I'm going to save you a lot of money on counseling. If you'll be quick to apologize, if you'll always give the benefit of the doubt and assume the best, and if you will use we instead of you, 90% of your problems will be gone. In this church, if you'll be quick to apologize, always give the benefit of the doubt and assume the best, and watch this, if you will use our church and not your church, you won't leave every single time that there's something you don't like. By the way, can I just tell you a secret? Don't tell anybody. The church you go to next is going to have problems that you're not going to like either because it's filled with a bunch of sinners trying to reach God together. Okay? Like, people are like, church filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Of course it is. I'm one of them. That's why we're here. Because if we were all perfect people, we wouldn't need this place. Listen, leaders are owners. Leaders are owners. All right, for the sake of time, which I want you to go back, my challenge is you go back, study all of this prayer because it's absolutely amazing. We could spend weeks on it. Go to verse 16. Oh Lord, he says, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins. 
And for the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Again, notice that Daniel doesn't blame God for the troubles that they're in. He takes ownership. It's your gorgeous, amazing people, and we messed the whole thing up. Verse 17. Now, therefore, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake. O Lord, if you underline words, that is so important. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. If you didn't know this, that phrase, for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon us, is a direct reference to Numbers chapter 6. Daniel is laying claims to the promises that are rooted back into the scriptures. He's saying, God, you promised to do it. And for your own sake, not for us, would you do it? Y'all, Daniel knew. Daniel knew the promises of God. He knew that he was going to bless his people. He knew that God made covenant with his people and that the Israelites were the ones that broke the covenant. The problem was never with God. Now, that's going to be important as we get to this later on. There's a problem with the covenant between God and man, and it's not with what God did. He also knew that this 70-year period was coming to an end and that God had to make good on it. By the way, If you didn't know this, if you remember those dates, historically speaking, after 70 years, God does make good on his promises. In 586 BC, the Babylonians, after they ransacked Israel and deported the people, well, if you actually look at it, in 516 BC, under the rule of Zerubbabel, the nation of Israel rebuilds the temple. That's 70 years later. I tell you that because I need you to understand, God always makes good on his promises. Always. For most of us, the problem is not that God doesn't make good. The problem is that we either don't hold up our end of the bargain, or honestly, we just don't even know the promises of God. Did you know that the recent LifeWay study that said that only 20% of American Christians have ever read their Bibles? Yeah, 20%. Maybe the problem is, is that we have the most amazing, untapped resource right in front of us. And God's like, if you want me to answer your prayers, just read it and I'll answer them. Verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Verse 18 is one of the most significant verses in the entire Bible. Watch this, Daniel does not appeal to his righteousness. He appeals to God's mercy. You need to understand this. God doesn't owe us anything. Jonathan Edwards might have said it best. The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. It's by grace you've been saved. It's by grace you've been saved, and it's his mercy that inclines God to bend his ear to us. But listen to me, God is a merciful God, and he wants to hear from you, but he doesn't have to do it based on your righteousness, and that is good news, because if he did it based on your righteousness, he would never listen to any of us. Think about it like this, my kids. I don't love my kids because they deserve it. Lord knows that that's not always true. I love my kids because they're my kids. Based on just the nature of their, my daughters and my sons being my children, I love them. And they have access to me that you don't have, right? My kids can show up in my bed at 2 o'clock in the morning. If you show up in my bed at 2 o'clock in the morning, we have problems. They can ask me for anything, and I'm not going to give it to them based on their righteousness. They can come and ask because I'm their father. 
And they inherently know that, and Daniel knew that. He knew the character of God. He knew that he was a child of God, and he prayed back to his God and had access in the most intimate of ways because of who God is and because who he is in position to the authority of his father. Think about it like this. Do you know the promises of God in the scripture? Let me just tell you a couple of ones. He promised he'd be with you, like always, never ending, always with you. Not just when two or three are gathered, always God is with you. He promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. He promised that he will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. He promised to keep you and adopt you as his children. He promised that if you would confess your sins, he would forgive you. When was the last time that you recalled one of these promises back to God and you appealed back to him based off of what the scripture said? Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. See the direct reference there? By the way, it's back to Deuteronomy. He's calling back the scriptures. Are you starting to see a theme? Prayer, write this down, prayer is most effective when you see God for who he is, take ownership for our sins, and pray God's promises back to him. All right. With that, I want to transition to the stuff you guys love, to the expectations of God's promises. But if you're tracking with me and you looked at what we just did, I showed you why Daniel prayed, what Daniel prayed, how Daniel prayed. Now I want to show you how God responds to these prayers. All right? I listen, I, 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 listen I'm going to just tell you, there's a lot going on in these prophecies. And we're going to dive into them, but I don't have the time to go through like every detail of every line. So I just invite you, like, have fun as you want, whenever you want to go through this, as much as you want. Verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sins of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Y'all, this is so amazing. While Daniel is praying, Gabriel swoops in like Superman and stands before him. He doesn't wait till after he's done. It's not a period of time. It's while he's praying. And in these two verses, you're going to see some really important details that will frame the way that the entire prophecy is supposed to be read. Here's letter A. God hears your prayers. You know, you're not just praying, you're praying to a God who, while Daniel was praying, in the moment that he was praying, God unleashes his angel to go to Daniel and to come to him to tell him exactly what is going to happen. Listen, God is passionate about hearing the prayers of his people. This should give you confidence. God wants to hear from you. This is good news. If you will take the time to pray, God will listen. Now, if you want God to answer your prayers, you should just pray God's scripture back to him. Like the great theologian Garth Brooks said, I thank God for unanswered prayers, right? No, but seriously, think about the things that your kids ask for. Daddy, can I have ice cream at 10 p.m.? Right? Like, or daddy, I don't want to go to school today because we have milestones tomorrow. This is a conversation I literally had with my, my daughter. Can I just sit at home and watch YouTube all day? Or can I go to that party? Like, my friends are having a party, they're having this real banger, can we hit? No, no, you cannot. None of those things. Why? Because I love you. 
Because I love you, I don't say yes to every single request that you have. Listen, if you're, if you're smarter than your five-year-old, I say five because by the time they get to seven, they start doing like algebra and stuff that I don't understand. But let's just, if you're smarter than your five-year-old, how much infinitely smarter is God than you? Do you not think that God always gives what's best to his children, even if you don't understand it? Let it be. And the angel Gabriel. There are three specific mentions of archangels in the entire Bible. You know, you know who they are? Anybody? Number one, Michael. Michael's like the bouncer angel. I'm serious. He's, that's his job. He's the enforcer angel. When God unleashes his angel and to enforce something, it's Michael. Number, the second one is Lucifer, commonly known as Satan. He's the fallen angel. Why this is important is the third angel is the angel Gabriel. What's fascinating is that the angel Gabriel has one job continually in Scripture. He is the announcer angel. And if you actually go read the Gospels, he announces one thing, only one thing throughout the entire Bible. He announces the coming of the Messiah. And Daniel chapter 9 is the first time that we have a direct reference in the entire Old Testament of the coming of the Messiah. That is important because if you want to understand this prophecy correctly, you need to understand that it's all about the Messiah. It's not about the Antichrist. It's not about different things. It's about the coming of the Lord Jesus. And with that, here's how you know it. Verse 21, I want you to see it again. He makes an important statement. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight, here it is, at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now that's really important. It's a really important detail. The angel Gabriel's job is to announce the coming of the Messiah. The sacrifice, according to Jewish law, had to take place in the temple. Do you know what did not exist during that, during that period of time? The temple. Why is that important? Because there was no evening sacrifice. See, the reality is, is Daniel had held on into his mind the place that the sacrifice was supposed to take place and the time because he was, look forward, he was looking forward to in expectation to what God was going to do. Now, if you remember back to Easter just a couple weeks ago, do you know what time Jesus died? 3 p.m., the exact time of the evening sacrifice. Jesus went to the cross at noon. He died three hours later at 3 p.m. What Daniel needed to know is that this is about the coming Messiah. And the coming Messiah, what you do know because you have a perspective that he doesn't, was that God was going to be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And all of this is to give you hope and courage for the future. So let me just ask it to you again. If you knew how the entire thing was going to end, would it change the way you live now? Here's the deal. If you understand this, it should reframe the way that we all live our lives. What God wants you to know and have confidence is, is that God is going to come and he's going to restore, ultimately restore this world. He wasn't just going to build a temple. He was going to be the temple to, be, to build all temples around. He was going to be the place that you could meet with him for all of eternity. Verse 22, he made me understand. One of the things that you need to know really quickly is that God sent his angels so that you can understand Y'all, prophecies are complicated, but they're not supposed to be confusing. If you will take the time to understand, God wants you to have confidence. He doesn't want to confuse you. He doesn't want you to have all these charts and all these things you can't understand. He wants you to have hope and expectation so that it shapes and changes the way you live. Again, look at it. Speaking to me, he said, oh, Daniel, I have come out to give you insight and understanding. See it? Verse 23. At the beginning of your pleas for mercies, a word of the Lord went out. I have come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved. 
Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. One last thing before we get into the complicated stuff. It's the most important thing in this, and it's the one thing you need to understand. It's that phrase, for you are greatly loved. If you underline words in your Bible, you need to underline that one because this is what framed his life. It's what gave him confidence to continue to pray three times a day, even as his life was on the line. It's what gave him the confidence to walk into a king who could have killed him at any point and said, I'm not going to bow to you. I'm going to bow to the king of kings instead of you. Y'all, this is what you need to understand about Daniel's life. You ready? And this is not hyperbole. His life kind of sucked. Listen to me. We know that Daniel most likely died in captivity. We know that he was deported from his home as a young kid. His family members were probably killed, potentially right in front of him. We know that he was definitely castrated, which means that he never had a wife, nor did he have a family, and he was marginalized as a slave. I need you to hear me say this. Earthly blessings aren't the measurement of God's love for you. See, Daniel had none of these things. And y'all, my fear is for some of you, you, you base the scales of your life based on your, your earthly successes. You either think God is blessing you because something went wildly good, you got a great bonus, or, or God is cursing you because your life is, is really, really awful and really hard. I think that most of that, and if I can say this humbly, comes out of an ignorance towards the Bible. Listen, Jesus said, if they hated me, don't you think they're going to hate you? What this life is, is difficult, but what you have is a sure foundation that no matter what your circumstances are, you are greatly loved. I'm just telling you, I've struggled with this. If you know my past, I've struggled with some of my circumstances. I've asked God, God, why, why couldn't I have had a different family? Why couldn't I have grown up in a different place or had easier circumstances? And every single time that I've asked that question, here's what I've heard back from God. Billy, I proved my love for you by the cross and my power over any circumstance that you have by the resurrection. And one day I'm going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death will be no more and it will all make sense to you. And until that time, I just need you to trust me. You are greatly loved. Listen, your circumstances aren't the measurement of God's love for you. Jesus is. And you need to understand that. If you understand that one thing, it will reframe the way that you view any of your circumstances for the rest of your life. This world is really difficult. And God does not measure his acceptance, approval, or love for you based off of anything that happens in this world. It's all based off what Jesus has done for you. And he promised that he will come and fix this world. With that, with that confidence, of Daniel being greatly loved. He walks now through one of the most complicated passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. Here it is, verse 24. Seventy weeks are declared, are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, here's where we need to do some Bible study. If you look down in your Bible, right after 70 week, you'll probably see an asterisk. That asterisk is there because that 70 weeks in Hebrew actually means 70 weeks of years. If you actually understand this, and it's not that complicated, in, in ancient Hebrew literature, they use sevens as a way to calculate time. We use tens. Like, we use decades. I was born in the 80s. I grew up in the 90s the best decade ever, and then into the 2000s. You hear what I'm saying? They, they would have used sevens. 
With that, that 70 sets of seven, if you do the math, is 490 years. All right, remember I told you a couple weeks ago that biblical prophecy always has a direct meaning and an eschatological or end times meaning. They're both. Now with all that, here's where all the controversy comes in. We really don't know what this means, if I'm just be honest with you. What we need to understand is this. Where the Bible is clear, we should live in clarity. Where it is not clear, we should live in charity. Okay? We should be a little charitable. Here's what, here's what I mean. Is that 70 years literal? Or is it like what Jesus said? If you know this, Jesus quotes to Peter, hey, you should forgive 70 times 7, which he's actually saying infinitely or perfectly or without any stop. Which one is it? In Hebrew, that, that tends to mean years, which we, I just said to you, but what kind of years is it? Is it the Jewish calendar year that had 360 days, or is it the lunar calendar year that we have that has 365 days? Are you tracking with me? The prophecy is about to tell you that this all happens as the decree goes out to build, rebuild the temple. If you know historically, that actually happens four times. All that to say, the point is, what we do know is that this is about Jesus. So lean into what you do know and don't try to build charts or figure out what... Y'all, I studied this week and you wouldn't believe how many end time charts I ran across from Daniel chapter 9. I wanted to just scream. God has already told us that we don't know when it's going to end. So stop trying to figure it out. It's about Jesus. Spend time on the point and what you will see is something absolutely beautiful going on here. God wants you to know that it is going to end and he wants you to have confidence right now. Okay? Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one. That anointed one is the Hebrew word for Messiah. That's the first time in the entire Old Testament that we see that word in that kind of language. A prince. If you actually look at Isaiah, what does he say? He's the prince of princes. He's the prince of peace. He's the Messiah. It's going back to here. There shall be seven weeks. Okay? The first reference to the Messiah in the Bible. Y'all, Daniel wanted to know, was God going to restore Jerusalem and rebuild his temple? And God says, Daniel, I've got something so much bigger in store than you could ever even understand. I didn't come to restore a temple. I came to redo all of creation. Now, this Messiah, this Messiah that was promised 490 years later, if you actually do the math, that when Daniel prays this, it actually puts you in the first century when Jesus would have been born. Gabriel is looking at him saying, guys, I need you to understand that there's going to be a Jesus, the Messiah, and he's going to come and do everything that I told you he was going to do. You remember what he told you he was going to do? Finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, anoint the holy place. Daniel needed to know that God wasn't going to come and put a band-aid on the problem of evil, but he was going to fix it. Listen to me. If your greatest enemy, all right, let me say it this way. If your greatest need was money, God would have sent an economist. If your greatest need was laughter, he'd have sent a comedian. If your greatest need was policies, he'd have sent a politician. Your greatest need is salvation, so he sent a savior. Then, for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one, there it is again. He's talking about the Messiah. That's going to be really important. The Messiah shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince, back to the reference of the Messiah, and the people of the prince who is to come shall, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. We know this. God's people did that. It shall come to, uh, it shall, it shall end, sorry, its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant 
with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to the sacrifice and the offering. And on the week of abomin- on the wings of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. What the heck, right? The angel Gabriel, listen, he tells Daniel that there's a coming Messiah. There's a coming Messiah and he, he will be destroyed, which we know this prince will be destroyed and he came. He came so that he can actually fix all of these bad things. In verse 27, he tells us that he makes a strong covenant with many. This is super important because remember, remember he's talking about the Messiah. The Messiah came to end all sacrifices by making a stronger covenant by being the person who fulfilled both sides of the covenant. This is exactly what he told us earlier, right? That there's a covenant that we broke, but God, you never broke. One of the most common misinterpretations of this passage is that, that he there is talking about the Antichrist. That doesn't make any sense, and the Antichrist isn't coming for seven years and make destruction. It's talking about Jesus. The entire passage is about the Messiah, and the Antichrist is never mentioned. Without getting into all the details of this passage, when you look at this strong covenant, in Hebrew, it uses the word gravar barat, which literally means to ratify a covenant that's already been made or to authenticate it. Jesus came in this passage. He's telling Daniel, hey, Daniel, you know that God made a covenant blessing with you and the people of Israel made, has brought on the covenant curses? Well, don't worry. God himself, the Messiah, is going to fulfill your side of the covenant to give you hope so that he can fix all this stuff. Y'all, this is one of the most amazing things that you can ever hear. The Messiah is going to win the victory over the world by stopping the sacrifices because he's going to become the ultimate sacrifice to give you new life. By the way, if you know this, that word week, again, I told you Daniel chapter 9 is year, and he tells, you, he tells it to you. Jewish scholars tell it to you in the Mishnah that, that this is going to happen. He tells you after three and a half weeks, which, which if you actually think about it, that's Jesus' earthly ministry. You see, after that, what does he do? He ratifies the covenant after three years of public ministry in order to die in your place. He's telling you exactly what's going to happen. This Messiah is going to come and live your perfect life and die your death in your place to be the sacrifice at the evening sacrifice at three o'clock to end all sacrifices. All of this came to pass. The Messiah did come and watch this. He was killed. This is so cool. On the 69th seven, which comes right before the perfect 70th seven. If if you're tracking with this idea of it being the perfect number, this 69th seventh is the the day before the perfect rest where God is going to come and restore the world back to the way that it was always supposed to be. See, right now we live in this already not yet period, this 69th seventh. But there's going to come a day. There's going to come a day where King Jesus is going to come back and he's going to bring rest and restoration to this world in a way that you and I could never imagine. Perfect peace, tranquility, without any sin. J.R. Tolkien, One day, God's going to make all the sad things become untrue. You know, the entire point of Daniel chapter 9 is not for you to have charts and prophecies. The entire point is to give you confidence that Jesus really is who he said that he is, and he really is going to come fix this world. So let me just ask you again. If you knew with confidence how it's all going to end, wouldn't that change the way you live now? I want you to notice the angel Gabriel, I've already showed it to you, says over and over and over and over and over again, I came so that you would know. I came so you would have insight and understanding. I came so that you would know. I came to tell you so that you would know. 
Y'all, what you have that Daniel doesn't have is you have perspective looking back. You know. You know. You know. And there's a time when King Jesus is going to come back and he's going to finish the job and he's going to bring you home. That should, bring, that should create hope in you and an urgency to tell the world because you have the greatest news ever. You know how it's all going to end, which should give you confidence despite your circumstances. It should give you a restfulness. It should create, watch this, the two things I said earlier, prayer and expectation. See that? Confidence and hope. If you know how all of it's going to end, it should change the way you live now. That's what God wants for his people. He wants it to impact and effect the way that we live now so that he can work through you to build a better kingdom. See? It's complicated, but it's not confusing. Let me pray. Father, we love you. Thank you that even hundreds of years before Jesus stepped foot on this earth, you told us how the whole thing was going to end. Even now, you promise that you'll never leave us, nor will you forsake us. You've already ratified this covenant by standing in our place and taking the covenant curse so that we can have your blessings. And King Jesus, we need you to continue to fill our minds with the truth of the gospel so that the noise of this world would get drowned out by a better hope, a hope found in you. God, would you change us? Would you use us? And would you remind us that we are greatly loved? In Jesus' name, amen.